Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be sitting down with the incredible Jennifer Jenkins, who has years of experience in shelter organizations and is the current operations manager of Brandywine Valley SBCA. There are so many feelings surrounding animal shelters, adoption, and what makes a good pet owner. And here at Cuddly, we really strive to open our eyes to all of them. That's why we were so thrilled to bring Jennifer on to speak on the realities of shelter conditions, the day-to-day operations, and the unspoken cultures and prejudices that come with animal welfare. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. Other than that, let's get started. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. Super great. So excited to finally nab you and and bring you on the (laughs) podcast here. I know there's going to be a lot of people who who may know you, who may soon know you from the amazing work that you do in a few different ways. But we always like to kind of roll back the clock a little bit and talk about when did you first start loving animals and how did you get into animal sheltering? Oh gosh, I've always had a love of dogs ever since I was younger. And I guess animals in general, but dogs, my main thing. I always wanted a dog. Finally got one when I was a kid. It was a black lab named Silhouette. And actually it was him and his brother were the last two left. And my dad just got both of them, Sonny and Silhouette. So yellow lab, of course, was Sonny. Let me see. We've had rabbits. It started off as a boy and a girl. Then they had a couple of litters. So that was interesting and fun. I remember one time, even before Sonny and Silhouette came along, I think, My dad came home with this shaved, I think it was an old English sheepdog is what it was. And it was shaved down and everything. So big dog around Christmas time. I named him Noel because it was around Christmas time. I was seven, eight years old, I think. My dad put a thing out in the newspaper because this was in the 80s. So put an ad out in the newspaper, say, hey, we found this dog. And somebody answered. And they said, see if he'll answer to Smokey. I can't believe I remember that. But and he sure enough, he did. And so it was him and his like teenage son or whatever. They came by the house, bought my parents' bottle of wine and everything to thank them for keeping their dog safe and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, Sonny and Silhouette came a little bit after that, I do believe that probably... It was supposed to be almost like a Christmas gift. So I may have got the, got them a little bit after Christmas, I think. Isn't that amazing, Sid, that you would ever put in the newspaper that you found a dog? I was just thinking that. Yeah. Just and how amazing to you that someone sees it too and it's like, oh my God, that's mine. Yep. That was how you got things out there and how people saw everything and they look in the newspaper. So yeah, different time, very different time. After that, I think with animals, of course, when you're younger like that, and even in high school, you go through things, what you want to do, what you want to be when you grow up. And I think if you're an animal lover, the only thing you knew to be was a vet. And that was it. I never really wanted to be a vet. I did well in school. Science, I realized that, nope, don't want to do science. There were certain science classes that I did enjoy, but To be in that field straight through, no, absolutely not. I got into animal sheltering, late 30s. My daughter, actually, she wanted to go visit this cat rescue called Cat Haven in Baton Rouge. She wanted to go see cats. So we visited the cats. She wanted to go to the shelter. She wanted to see the dogs. We did that, I think, the next day or the following weekend. We went to the shelter. And we were just walking around and everything. And it was, the person was walking us and this other woman and her daughter around. And they said, okay, thank you. And they left. But then she turned to us. She said, okay, so which dog are you interested in? Because we were going to do the same thing. And I was like, well, since you're asking, there was this one dog I saw. It was like a black lap mix, I think. 
And we were thinking about it. And we was like, okay, we'll think about it. We came back the next day after talking about it, came back for that dog. And he was a long timer, came back. He was at an offsite. He ended up getting adopted at the offsite. And so then they were telling us about another dog that was there. And it was taking them a while to bring her out. But then I asked about this little black lab mix dog I saw outside with the volunteer. And I said, well, what about that dog? I said, oh yeah, he's available. He's a long timer too. And we went out there with the volunteer and she talked to us. And she's like, so, you know, he is, he's really active. He's just really, really nice way of saying he's nuts. <laughs> we adopted him. I went to go buy all the things for him, took him home the next day. I guess I should have mentioned, I had a blue chow chow before this. Yes. And she had passed, I think about five years. No, maybe nine years prior. My daughter hadn't even turned a year yet. I hadn't had a dog for like eight years. So I had Storm and he was nothing like the blue chow chow where she was just perfect and so well-mannered. He was about a year and nuts. He was just nuts. (laughs) I always say Storm made me a better pet parent. I went, took him to training. I read and watched everything about animals. I mean, I loved them, but then I wanted to, I guess, better understand him and just dogs in general. And I don't know what it was, just something clicked. You know, I couldn't get enough of just learning everything I could. And we ended up fostering because, again, he was nuts. So we fostered and volunteered for a couple of years. Then I started working part-time, then full-time as adoption counselor. And let's see, adopt part-time as a offsite coordinator. Then within a year, I did full-time as adoption counselor and still did offsites. And then in another year, I became the placement adoption manager there at that same shelter. I did that for about a little bit over a year, got fired and out of a job for a few months. And then I went to Jefferson Parish and became the shelter manager there. Did that for about a year and a half or so, almost, which is kind of weird to me because I'm used to changing positions each year. And now I am here at Brandywine in Delaware. I love that. Amazing. It's so funny when there's like a gateway dog. I was just thinking that. And like, it's so funny, like when you get a sort of like high energy dog or like a, a kooky dog or things like that, it, it is tough, but it's funny how it's like the hidden secret that it, it really does make you a better pet parent. And it, it forces you to, to learn about these things and, and sort of like uh, figure out what that animal needs to succeed. It's a little a hidden truth. I like it. Yeah. As long as, you know, cause I was definitely not going to bring him back. Cause I've seen where people will bring back a dog like that because they're like, he's just too much. I think I just had too much pride to even do anything like that. So I was like, I'm not going to bring this dog back. Mm-hmm. So I just went ahead and did what I needed to do to just better understand him and better take care of him, I guess. And so here we are. And now I have a total of four dogs. (laughs) I don't recommend it. (laughs) Okay. This is important though, because Sydney's on the fence. (laughs) She's like, she's under the belief that there's no difference between three dogs and four dogs. Yeah. We were talking about this. Oh my gosh. I have told people when they get to three, I'm like, stop, just stop. (laughs) Like, you're like, what's one more? They really are. It's like, okay, what's one more? I mean, I've had at the most six dogs at one time, a five were mine and one was a foster. So no, it's just like, ah, what's one more? Just throw another one into the mix. And then you get to a point where you have to play musical, musical crates or musical room. Because there's that one dog you add. That's an important point, though. I'm glad you came here to clear that up because Sydney was about. And then, of course, she'd be of the mindset of like, well, what's four to five? Because I, I feel like when I when I got my first dog, moving on to a second dog, that was tough because you're taking one dog that you've given your entire intention to. You have adjusted your entire schedule for this one dog, its entire life. When you put in two in the mix, then it's like you have to start splitting it. So that was a big transition. But when I got my third, little difficult, but I was already used to dividing the time up. It wasn't that hard. And now that I have three, I, I'm babysitting a fourth one. And I'm like, it's, it's really not that different. <laughs> Again, I'm sure it depends on the dog, that fourth dog that you do get. If you get some wild, 
the high energy dog. I'm sure that that's a whole nother story. She's relatively calm. The fourth one, I'm like, it can't be that hard of a jump. It depends. Like I said, it depends. I, I know when I added my Akita, I got her. She was seven months old. She was fine. I hadn't had a puppy since I had the chow chow. So getting her, it's like, oh, you you actually see the personality changes and everything. And she grew. And there were sometimes little squabbles with my storm. But then it, it got to the point where she would see him and she would just go after him. Go after him. Yeah. So that's, I had musical breaks or musical rooms. And you learn to adjust. You really, truly do. But I wish I didn't have to do that. But it is what it is. I'm not going to give any of them up. So. Well, so I know a lot of your experience was based in like Southern shelters. And I mean, it's pretty widely known by a lot of, especially the rescues that work in transport. I mean, of course, the high capacity of of Southern shelters and that everyone's trying to make that shift to move animals up north and kind of fluctuate things to minimize euthanasia as much as possible. But I'm wondering from personal experience, if you can touch on what it's like actually working in a Southern shelter. Being in Baton Rouge and being in Jefferson Parish, there was a, a little bit of a difference. They're both big shelters to probably two of your bigger shelters in Louisiana and both open and take shelters. The one in Baton Rouge, 501c3, the one in Jefferson Parish, municipal shelter. It, the one in Baton Rouge, euthanasias did happen every single day, pretty much, except maybe one or two days, but it was kind of scheduled. You fill up really, really quickly being at a shelter in the South. I think it's because of the mindset maybe that people have. You're talking about Louisiana, the South, or even, you know, like Mississippi or whatever. It's more rural. It's agriculture based. Dogs are for working. Of course, there's a lot of people that have companion pets and everything. But, you know, it's just overall, just the mindset is they're just looked at a little bit differently. Spay neuter. It's not as prevalent mm-hmm. in the communities. I would say you're trying to work with people, but getting them the animal spayed, neutered. A lot of people, they don't want to do that. Of course, they want to breed that pit bull that it doesn't matter where you are. I think in the United States, there is the pit bull problem. Everybody has so many pit bulls. And of course, people are not, they're just breeding them just so they can make you know some money. They're not taking into consideration temperament and everything because that is passed on through the parents. You breed an aggressive pit bull. Most likely those puppies are going to end up growing up to be aggressive or just whatever little quirks they may have or even some medical issues. In Jefferson Parish, getting there, we did not euthanize a whole lot over there. We truly did health and behavior. I did euthanize. I did that in Baton Rouge. I did in Jefferson Parish. And it was kind of refreshing to go to Jefferson Parish. The only euthanasias pretty much that I did, the most of them were owner requested. Older dog, they don't have the money to take it to a vet. So those are a little bit, hate to say easier, but easier because you can clearly see this animal is in decline. There is a serious health issue going on. When I had to euthanize for behavior, I put those off a little bit unless it was like a bite quarantine, really super aggressive, because I always say like probably 99% of the behavior issues we euthanize for can be treated. You can work with them. So it was a hard thing to do that. Sometimes I let them linger a little bit because I'm just, I'm like, I. Not yet. Yeah, you know, I'm just, if we could just find that right home for this particular dog who's willing to work with this dog, then it'll be fine. But when you're talking about being an open intake shelter in the deep south, you can't just hold on to dogs like that. And it's just just hard, especially if we don't have as many avenues. Jefferson Parish actually was doing a lot of transports, doing more transports, working with rescues and everything. So we're able to get more out, but sometimes, I mean, you still, you're in the South. How many animals would you say at the shelters you were working at? I mean, in comparison to how many runs or kennels that you had, how many were you getting every day? Like as new intakes? Oh my gosh. 
you could get as many as, I mean, sometimes you could get like 20, 30. Wow. I think one time I remember this in Baton Rouge. It was my first flight I've ever done as for transport. We put, I think, 72 dogs and it was just our flight. 72 dogs went uh, to the Northeast and we were full. I mean, there were dogs everywhere. It was over 200 dogs, I think. By the time we came back, I believe almost all of those kennels were filled again. Yeah, it, it was. Wow. So it almost feels like you're just on this wheel and it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Even just hearing about it, it weighs on you. I can't imagine having to go in and work a 10 hour shift every day and experience that. How do you feel like that impacted the staff and everyone who was? interacting with the community as well? People get burned out. You get animal sheltering is known for having, of course, high turnover rate, especially for the people I think who work in the kennels. So there's, there's a lot of burnout. Even with interacting with the public, people start to look at people. There's a lot of judgment to get like, oh my gosh, just another one and another owner surrender, another this, another that. And you start to look at people not in a favorable light and almost forget why we're there. There have been times I had to remind people, it's like, well, we are an animal shelter. So better they bring them here than just letting them loose. Absolutely. So from our point of view, I mean, and I'm sure just so many different animal welfare organizations exist so much online now, and it almost becomes this weird forum for people to like throw their judgment out based on like just the smallest bit of information. It's always heartbreaking, especially like when you come from our vantage point at Cuddly, where we're the ones that are like getting the tearful phone calls from rescuers mm-hmm. and they're doing everything possible. And then they, for some reason, they'll throw out just as much information as they can offer the community and people get really angry about it. So angry. And they're like, tell me where this person lives and like (laughs) saying all these aggressive things. Yeah. I see that a lot where people try to come after even people in the public and oh my gosh, how can they're so quick to jump to the worst possible scenario for all that person must be awful and they're this and they're that. And they may not know what happened, why they had to bring that dog there, why they had to owner surrender, why they left it. Like we had outside pens and outside runs at Jefferson Parish. I mean, sometimes you go to work and there you are, you see a dog in one of the pens. I know one time I was leaving after working a pretty long shift and I'm walking out the door and I look over to my right and I'm like, oh man, of course, you know, do that intake on this dog and everything like that. And actually I remember with this dog, the person left a note. You see people, they just jump to all these horrible horrible conclusions about people, about the public and everything. It's to the point where I tried not to follow a bunch of rescue people's pages. Actually, I have a Facebook page, but I'm really not on it much. And sometimes when I see something about animal rescue and whatever, I I just kind of scroll past it because I'm going to get upset or they're going to start talking about the shelter, like the open intake shelter and how horrible we are and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like the the way some people portray animal shelters, open intake animal shelters and the people there as if we get off on euthanizing. No one enjoys that. It's not fun. There have been times when I have to euthanize and I don't realize how bad it's getting to me. And then I, I'm just... I'm just starting to get full and my eyes are starting to tear up because it it gets to you. And especially when you euthanizing for a behavior issue, like I said, 99% of them you can work with. You can treat. can treat. So it's not an easy thing to do. And people think we're just, you know, these horrible monsters that are putting animals down because, oh my gosh, we just take such great pleasure in doing that. Absolutely not. That, I mean, the majority of the people who are in animal sheltering love animals and they have a bunch of their own. These are people who work in shelters. They're working with animals all day. They have their own and then they're taking fosters home. 
you have model baby kittens that come in and you'll have an employee that'll like, okay, I'll go ahead and take them. And that's a pretty round the clock feeding. So they're already tired. And then you're talking about maybe every two to four hours, they have to feed these bottle baby kittens. And then on top of that, they may fade. Then they have to deal with that. I, you know, of course, I take it very personally. I work with these people and then to see us get just bashed like that, like we are demons or whatever. And I mean, don't get me wrong. You probably do have a few in animal sheltering that probably should not be in animal sheltering. I have worked with a couple of people like that. And I'm just like, I don't even understand why you're here. I try to stay away from certain pages and try to scroll past. Every once in a while, I end up reading something and I'm like, yeah, I get so ticked and I want to respond, but I don't want to get anybody in trouble or any shelter I work at in trouble. Absolutely. Definitely. And I think you, you've touched on such an important point of like setting that very clear boundary for yourself of like, especially after you've worked such a long shift and you come home and social media is a 24 seven beast. So it's always going to be like right there over your shoulder, whispering things to you. Right. But being able to like set that boundary of like, you know what? No, I'm putting that area of my life on the shelf so I can like take a breath and like focus on things I love and focus on the animals I love and my family. Well, take care of yourself so that you can get up and you can go back tomorrow. It was a learning process for me to kind of put some of that away. I'm just recently, honestly, because you have access, you know, staff has access to you, seems like 24-7. It's because it almost is like a round-the-clock job. But I have learned that on when I am off, I will snooze my notifications for my email. I just try to stay away from some of that, try not to even check in in my emails or look on maybe our Facebook page or anything like that. Just to give myself some space because this work is consuming. It's all consuming and people get burned out really quickly. And then especially you have people who've been doing it for years and years and you meet some people in this field and maybe they haven't been able to take a good vacation or no real days off or anything like that. And you need to, you have to. Mm-hmm. The animals will always be there. I told somebody one day, I was like, they will be there. You need to take your, take some time for yourself. You do, you get burnt out and you get frustrated and everything. So. Absolutely. Well, I can only imagine too, like for those people. And I know I'm like similar to you where I'm like, no, just keep pushing through and hold it together. And honestly, I'll be the first to admit it makes the people you're around really bummed out. Cause like, you're not going to be your best and it's going to increase their burnout too. I think if you're not able to be a little bit lighter and to kind of weigh everything in balance, I think it probably increases burnout. If everyone feels just like so under pressure and just hanging on by a thread, everyone's just going to burn out that much more quickly. Yeah. And you got to give people space to say, you know what? It's okay if I take a day off. What is okay if I'm off at five, I leave at five or I leave at 5.05 or whatever, or it's okay if I don't take that litter of kittens in, take them home. You've got to give people space to do that. You have to. And if you're just that type of person that's just going, 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 and you think everybody else around you is supposed to just go, 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 just like you said, they burn out, people get tired, they just, they're not happy. And then it makes your work environment just not a great place to be. Definitely. I feel like too, it's, it feels like really selfish to like take time off sometimes. But if you get that in your head of like, no, I'm helping the people around me by taking time off. That's how I rationalize. I'm like, good for you. Yeah, you're doing it for them. It's like what you said too. Like it's, there's, the dogs are always going to be there. The animals are always going to be there. Rescue is unfortunately one of those I don't like to call it industries, but it's just one of those things that it's it's not nine to five. It's 24-7. There's always going to be an animal in need, no matter what hour of the clock it is. So you need to take a break. You have to separate yourself, get yourself to sleep, You know, focus on your own mental health and, and get back to it when you can. Because if you're going to follow that clock 24-7, you're going to burn out like that. 
Yeah, you are. And you're not going to be any good to the staff and you're not, and you're definitely not going to be any good to those animals that you want to help. You're probably just, you're going to end up probably making more mistakes and everything. And we got to be really mindful of, and I think he just has a hard time getting up. And I think he's aggravated because I'm not, he doesn't see me right now. <laughs> and I think he wants to get up, but he he's just. like, mom. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I know we talked a little bit. I mean, we've touched on judgment a little bit, which certainly is prevalent in just so many areas of animal welfare. But I know one that's really specific that a lot of different organizations have against like the public or maybe unknowingly are kind of shooting themselves in the foot is in regard to adoption and the types of people they're willing to adopt out to. I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Cause I know you, you mentioned like in the South, there's like a lot of like working dogs and probably a lot of like outdoor dogs. So wondering if you can touch on that a little bit. It's so weird because in the South, it's kind of the culture is agriculture, but then you have your rescue people who look at other people like that, who may want that beagle to go hunting with. It's like, that's what it was right to do. So let it do its job. They frown on that. They frown on people having outside dogs. They, and you see this all the time. That dog should be living in the house with the rest of the family. It's a family member, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there are some dogs that actually prefer being outside. There are some people, they just, dogs need to be outside. It's an animal and it's fine as long as they're providing all of your needs. But I have seen where Happy Tails, this was in Baton Rouge, on their page, they posted the Happy Tails and it was a guy who was dressed in like hunting gear. He looked like, you know, hunting gear. And I think he adopted a, might've been some kind of coon hound or something like that, which is a hunting dog, of course. And somebody commented and they were not happy that we adopted to this person because he looks like a hunter. And unfortunately, I was already working for them. I think I just started working for that shelter. So I couldn't comment. I wanted to comment so bad. Like, but that dog is probably very happy, you know, going out there hunting and doing what it was actually bred to do. So you see that. I've seen where people, just the way people are dressed, you know, are you sure it's, you want to adopt those people? I'm like, all you have to do is have a conversation with folks. You just can't judge just because the clothes that they're wearing, because they may not seem like they may not have that much money. Clothes are not always indicative of how much money a person has. Money is not always indicative of how well they will treat that pet that they just adopted. I've seen where there have been people with money and they didn't do anything with the dog, didn't treat it properly at all. So then you can see some of the poorest people, homeless people. I think sometimes you look at a homeless person, one of the best examples of good dog ownership, they will feed them before they feed themselves. A lot of those dogs, sometimes they're off leash and they're just following that person around. I mean, Clearly that dog loves that person, loyal to that person. So obviously that person's doing something right. I wish that we would stop judging and stop being in this bubble of what we think pet ownership should look like and just make sure they have, do they have the basics? Are they loved? Are they, do they have food? Do they have shelter? Are they water? All the, all the things and not just if they're living in the house, like, we would have our dogs in the house or whatever. And then all, especially people in rescue and animal sheltering, it's probably our dogs. I will speak from personal experience. I will say this for myself. I've always felt that the animals I had in the shelter, especially ones I would put in my office, probably got more of my time than my personal dogs because I was probably at work more. And then that dog was right there in my office with me. So they're always around me. Whereas my dogs, I'm away from them probably 10 hours a day or so, 10 to 12 hours sometimes a day. And all I can do is basically come home, feed them, let them out and not walk, but let them out in the backyard. So they couldn't even get that mental and physical stimulation by going on a walk. So in some of you look at some of these people who 
that we're so quick to judge and we don't want to adopt out to may not have a fenced in yard. Their dog might roam or hang out in the front yard, maybe walk down the street, visit their doggy friend, you know, down the street or whatever. But those dogs, they are well taken care of and they're happy and they get to see their people and everything like that. So definitely it feels like so many people have this like one track mind of this is what a good pet parent looks like. And even so, so much so that it's like, well, if you can't afford raw food or if you can't afford these like high quality products, and I can't believe your dog's not wearing this kind of sweater right now. And I love what you're saying though, is like, especially when there's so many animals in need looking for homes, like who are we to say what will make their life the most fulfilled and happy? Right. And then when you actually get people, they decide to come to the animal shelter to get a dog or a cat or a rabbit or guinea pig or whatever it is. Just in that right there for them to say, hey, I'm going to go to the animal shelter first. Instead of going to the backyard breeder down the street, my cousin who I know is breeding these pit bulls or shih tzus or whatever it is, for them to say, hey, I'm going to go to the animal shelter. To me, that speaks volumes that they would come to the shelter first to get their pet. We need to take that into consideration as well. Definitely. I mean, something that we hear so, so often, and I'm sure every rescue shelter, every animal welfare organization hears it too, about how hard it is to adopt. It's so hard. And so it gets in so many people's way. And I love what you're saying there is like, if you're going to reject them over and over, they're going to go to a breeder. They're going to go somewhere else. They they absolutely will. They absolutely will. Because we all know somebody, or if we don't know somebody, we know somebody who knows somebody who can point you to where you can go ahead and get whatever type of dog you're looking for, whatever breed it is or whatever. We easily could find out where we can go to, and it probably not a reputable breeder. So, and at least they come to the animal shelter. I mean, they're vetted, they're fixed, they have shots, they're up to date on their vaccines and everything. And possibly even treated for heartworms, or maybe depending on where you adopt from, there may be an avenue for you to get those heartworms treated. So we need to stop pushing these people away. We really do. Absolutely. Especially when you think about these like breeders. We talked about this a, a couple of episodes ago of like, there's not a stamp for breeders too to be like, oh, well, I am a reputable breeder. Mm hmm. And if a breeder tells you and you're going to a breeder, if they're like, well, no, I'm one of the good ones, though, you're going to accept that because you're already there and you don't want to feel guilty about your decision. So making pet ownership open and accessible to everyone is is so such a wonderful cause and mission. Now, I know COVID is gone and we we're never looking back. And no, I'm kidding. (laughs) I know that you had a really specific experience with COVID, working at a shelter and hiring people during that time. And I'm wondering if you can touch on that, what it was like, because I know people are saying there's like these different waves right now of like pandemic versus now this like intense, like return of animals. So I'm wondering if you can touch on your experience of like through COVID and immediately after. So when COVID like first really hit, We were able to, and I was in Jefferson Parish at the time, we were able to pretty much empty out East Bank. We were able to, a lot of rescues stepped up to get animals, went to foster care. We were still doing, I think, did transport stop for a moment? I can't remember, but I do remember we got a lot of animals out. And there was a time where we had to send people home, those who may have been more susceptible to catching it and everything. And we were working with six and it was easy because we had very few animals in the shelter. Then as they started easing up on everything, then you started seeing animals starting to return. Everybody was getting back to normal. People were starting to go back to work. So you started getting this influx and everything. And then we actually started losing animal care workers. Either they were going to a different department within the shelter or whatever, or if we had to terminate a couple of people, but it was hard and trying to hire new people, trying to find people, 
it was hard. And I know I hear that pretty much everybody was having a hard time finding people to work and everything, but it is really difficult because we were full. Just about every single kennel was full and everything. And then if you only have maybe one or two kennel workers, and so you have animal control coming in, supervisors, everybody pitching in and helping out, it makes it difficult. Yeah, I feel like it's what so many industries are experiencing, but then especially in, in one that already has such a high turnover rate to go from like this like really like rose-colored picture of what working in a shelter is going to be. And then all of a sudden flipping the light switch back on and, and opening the doors again. I can only imagine what a shock it was to so many people. Yeah, because I remember there was two people that we hired during the pandemic. So when we had like no animals, hardly. And then at one point last year, when we had all of the hurricanes were coming. And so we were all consolidated at West Bank, East and West Bank, they mirrored each other. So you had everybody over at West Bank. So it was really nice. And then you go back to normal, you have West Bank, you have East Bank, and then it gets really full. And they're like, wait, what is this? I'm like, well, this is actually pretty much normal, especially around this time in the summertime and everything. It was a shock to people. It was a shock. And then you start losing people and then you can't hire anybody because nobody's really applying. Definitely. Well, so I know you've just transitioned to a shelter in the North. Sounds like you're like a Game of Thrones character or something. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, I mean, just from your initial reaction, I mean, are you already seeing less animals there? Or I know a lot of shelters have been filling up because people have been returning animals. We have quite a few, but not, it's, it's not that bad. And also we're a receiving shelter too. So we, we'll take in animals from other shelters, but of course there are, there's the Pennsylvania, the three in Delaware. So at the, we do more adoptions out of Pennsylvania. They take way more foot traffic and everything like that. So they'll probably, when we get transports, they probably get the bulk of the animals that eventually will come to them. So I realized the animal sheltering is pretty much the same wherever. They used to have the same kind of issues. You see some of the same things for the most part, like the people coming in, the owner surrenders, that kind of thing. But I'm trying to see the difference. I think I was saying before, the difference between coming to the shelter in the Northeast is a very progressive shelter as well. The leader is a visionary, pretty much. So they have a lot of things going. They're helping, like they're down in Louisiana, helping out Louisiana and Tangipahoa Parish and everything like that. So it's really interesting to be on that other side. It was so crazy. I was talking to the person who's training me, whose position I'm actually taking because she got promoted. And she was just asking me how it was, how did I think it was doing and everything. I said, you know, okay, it's just different. I'm, like I said, I thrive in chaos. It's way more regimented. It's like the clearer signs and everything. I know it, it will get chaotic and everything, but I don't know. It, it's just different. And I know there's a lot I can learn from being at Brandywine as well, because there's just this other side to it. And because it's so clearly defined roles, this is how protocols in place for how you do everything, which is amazing. That's going to be something for me to get used to, because with my personality type, I am very much, I'm not that ordered, I guess. I'm not that like, okay, I'm doing this and this and this, and then I'm not like that. And in this position and where I am now, I have to be like that. I have to learn how to be like that. And probably it's going to be more desk work and administrative that I have to do. And I have to learn how to be able to sit there and be still and make sure I do what I have to do because I am very much, I'd like to be able to get up and just get out and do whatever. I I sometimes have a hard time just sitting there. Well, I wonder too, if like, at your old positions, you were kind of forced to have to like be in these chaos moments so often that it became like the routine almost. I think so. In those previous positions, I came in, especially the last one, 
I came in doing a transport when I first got there and then not really going through training. Like right now I'm going through training. I have somebody there with me and showing me how to do all these things. When I was in Jefferson Parish, I didn't have that. I just came in and I just did it. I just took what I knew and I was like, this is what we're going to do. So there was that. So I'm kind of used to just kind of just going in and just let me go ahead and just do what I do. I totally empathize because I feel like in our company, I've been around so long that I was there when we were like basically working out of a closet. And so I was like the event coordinator and the tech person and the everything. And so I was used to like kind of dancing around doing all these things. And now that we have gotten to a place where I can do one person's job, it's almost like you're looking around and you're like, I have to be forgetting something. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I'm just hoping that, because I think after this week, the person's trained me, she's going to be going to the different shelters in Delaware. So I'll be able to be, be on my own for a little bit. So I'll get a taste of that next week. I'm a pretty quick learner. I get really nervous at first when I go into something new sometimes. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what I'm going to do. Sometimes that imposter syndrome kind of hits you hard, but I know it'll be fine. It'll work out. I just, sometimes I think I overthink something sometimes. I'm just like, oh my God. And then also I've moved from Louisiana to Delaware. That messes you up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was hectic because I wanted to be here a week before I started, but we know Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana. So that pushed me back. Yeah. We were out of power for four days, which is nothing compared to how some people just still without power. It was like that last week when I was supposed to be finishing packing and getting ready to go. And so it, it just pushed me back. And I think the, even the day before I left, my Jerry was able to catch a flight up here, trans, get on the transport and just come up here. And so I was rushing going to the vet because I had all my dogs in boarding. The three of them are still in Baton Rouge in boarding. But I wanted Jerry up here because he's old and... I worry. I think he's towards the end of his life and everything. I want him to be with me if it happens. But, you know, I was rushing to do that. Had to get him over to Hammond so you know, he'll be ready for the flight. That was a Thursday. And then Friday morning, my daughter and I hit the road at 5.30 in the morning. And usually when I take a trip like that, I stop overnight at a hotel. Well, I couldn't do that because I had to get there before that plane got there. You know, I had to make sure I was there. <laughs> So we, it was over a 19 hour drive and I just drove and I thought I was going to stop at like a rest area, just catch me a couple of Z's. I was like, you know what? Let's just keep on going. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did. We got here at like 2.30 in the morning, got to bed at 5.30 in the morning. So, oh my God, I was up for 24 hours straight. That's crazy. I just realized that. Got up like at 9.30 or something tracking the plane, saw that it was actually stopping somewhere else first before it landed in Pennsylvania. It's like, oh, thank God. I don't think I was able to go back to sleep though. So I was just up. So, I mean, we're talking about maybe four hours of sleep in the past 24 hours or so. All for Jerry. All for Jerry. You know, all my, my boy. So I was just going, going and going and it was just nonstop. And that Saturday I was here, I mean, I was crying all day that, that Saturday. I was just in the car, I was just crying. And I think I was just so overwhelmed because I just didn't get a chance to stop. So I got him, of course, the apartment that we're in is a walk-up in Jerry's old. And I realized that before when I was on my way to go get him, I was like, yeah, these stairs are going to be a monster. And sure enough, he walked up like six or seven steps and then he just slid back down. So I had to take a scarf, make a sling, and my daughter took his leash and had to get him up that way. I tried to see if he could go back down so I could take him out so he can use it. He got down like two or three steps and sat. He said, absolutely not. I said, okay. So I had to go get some puppy pads. And there's this thing called dog park in a box. I got found that, got that. And there's a balcony off of the kitchen. So I would take him out there to use it. But Jerry is like between 90 and 100 pounds. So there is no tucking him under my arm, take him down the stairs. So had to improvise and everything. So that was that Saturday. And then Sunday, which was the day before I had to start work. And Sunday, I was just going, going, going. 
you know, stuff to do to prepare for work the next day. You know how you start a new job, you just get so excited and everything. I was so tired Monday morning when my alarm was <laughs> like, oh no. Yeah. So I've just been going ever since. You're just about getting into your flow then. Like it sounds like you, you started a bit burnt out. I know, which is horrible, but I, I it, it's getting better than that. You know, of course, worry like, oh my gosh, I make this move and is it going to work out and everything. We had a couple of Zoom meetings and everything. And I was like, okay. I can do this. And everybody's been really gracious, really nice to me since I've been here. So, which is, of course, always a big help. I just know I just need to get used to everything and it'll be fine. Yeah. What a journey you've been on already. And I feel like things are about to just like take off for you in a whole new way. I'm so excited. It's really exciting to see. And I'm sure animal sheltering will be better because of it because you'll You've got these new reins that you're able to kind of corral. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. Definitely. I know I've already, we've already taken up a bunch of your time, but I would be remiss if I didn't touch on the aspects that we really touch on um, in a video series that, you, that you'll be coming out in soon. And a bit of it is focused on the fact that you don't see a lot of individuals of color in animal sheltering, in animal welfare. And certainly I think at Cuddly, we've seen a bunch of sh- like different rescues and shelters and we're hyper aware of it that there really does tend to be like this one type of person that you see throughout. I've become more aware of it even since we spoke. I was lucky enough to be on a panel with this with lovely young lady who runs an account that's Black Women Love Dogs. And she created this community because she adopted a dog and there was no like group of dog lovers that she could really bond with that looked like her. And I'm wondering if you can, I know it's a big topic, but briefly touch on your experience (laughs) as a woman of color in this industry. I think when I first got into it and everything, and I think it's sometimes it may still hold true. I can't really say my experience up here because I just haven't been here long, but I think it's just different up here in the North too. But my experience has been in the South. So I'm going to talk about that. Of course, everybody was nice and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think sometimes I, when I look back, I almost think I probably they look at me as being different. Like I'm not like, like, oh, she's a different type of Black person. Maybe even different and I'm not like the rest of them, I think. That's maybe what the feeling is, just because you don't see a lot of Black people in this field. I mean, you'll see people, a lot of Black people working like the kennels and everything. But to get to that point where somebody is like there and at all these different events and they're fostering or all these different things, you don't see too many Black people doing that. And it's not that we're not out there, like that we're not passionate. It's just animal welfare as a whole, I don't think has been very welcoming to Black people, probably to a lot of people of color, but I'm a Black woman, so I'll speak to, you know, being a Black woman. I think there was that I was just, I was different, maybe almost like a token, maybe almost they could look to that Black friend that they, or that Black person that they know in animal welfare. And I know I've talked about this before, 2016 kind of brought out a lot of stuff because 2016 in Baton Rouge, of course, we had the Great Flood. Alton Sterling was murdered. And then uh, I think the very next day, Philando Castile in uh, Minnesota was murdered as well. And then you had somebody come down and, and retaliation, ambush police officers. And I believe it was three that were actually murdered. So it, it was tensions were high. And then you got to see, I got to see how people thought, how, what they, how they felt. I was in their Facebook, your animal shelter, and you have different Facebook groups for the fosters, the volunteers, whatever. So the volunteer group, I think they were so used to it being a lot of white people in there. Somebody asked about, you know, new shirts and what we want them to say. And and they're saying somebody made a joke. Was it Black Dogs Matter? Dogs Matter? Dogs Lives Matter? It was something. I forgot what it was. 
And a couple of people, they said, no, that's a, not a good idea. I said, yeah, no, we should not do that. And that's all I said. It's hoping that, you know, my profile picture at the time was my daughter in her volunteer shirt, hugging on Winston, who was one of our dogs. And so they kept going with it. And then finally, I had to go ahead and just check them a little bit and say, so that girl in that picture is my daughter. I am her Black mother. Like, don't think I'm white and I adopted her or something. Like, no, no, no. She actually is my biological child. So, and just had to remind them that, yeah, even though there's not a great Black presence in this page, but there is one. And I am there a lot at the shelter. I got to see people for who they are, like for real, for real. So that that was interesting. I think it made me a little bit more aware of maybe my place there, how people maybe really saw me. I think so. It just made me a little bit more aware. I think I just kind of took that with me into even when I went to Jefferson Parish, I, I just became more, more aware, not as trusting. Because I think people saw me as a different type of Black person, maybe not like them, quote unquote. Sometimes people will say certain things, let a couple of things slip. And it may not even be with Black people, it may have been with other ethnicities. You talk about like Latinx and everything. You know, some people just, they'll say, I remember this one person, I think it was Hispanic family came in. I wasn't there that day, but I remember she said something to me about how she like, yeah, and they were speaking Spanish. So I was like, you're in my country now. You need to be speaking English. And I remember thinking, ah, there it is. There's racism. Okay. Yep. Can only hide it for so long. And then it's going to come out. I just, sometimes I just let people talk and then I hear it. I'm like, now I know how to deal with you. you. Know where you really, where your head's really at. I'll say there is a lot of racism in animal welfare. I think people, they appreciate my love for animals and my work I do. But when you come to my human, when it comes to my humanity, no, is I only have value because of the work I do with animals. That's the feeling I get. I know a lot of people will probably really push back on that and they would like, oh my gosh, no. But I would probably say those would probably be the ones who would actually be would value my work over my humanity. I know. And it's something I feel like more and more, I know personally, I'm becoming very aware of like this reductive representation of who a good pet parent is, who an animal lover, what they look like and how they act and what their home looks like. And I feel like more and more, it's especially with social media, there's these opportunities for people to highlight like, every different kind of relationships with pet parents and in animal welfare. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to chat with you and to listen in on all your insights that you have, because I feel like you have so, so many, and I'm sure many more to come. So thank you so much for sharing with us. I do have, I'm going to do it, Sydney. We're going to do some fun (laughs) questions. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to keep you for just a minute more. And the note on that. Because you got Jerry there. <laughs> we got to give him the appreciation he deserves. Want me to try to get Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're willing to speak for him, I'm wondering if Jerry could talk, what would be the first thing he said? He would probably say, pay attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time when he barks. He is not like a watchdog or guard dog or anything like that. He doesn't bark at people like when the doorbell would ring or somebody would knock at the door. <laughs> He's never been that dog. I remember the owner that used to have him. She was 90 years old when I met her and she really couldn't take care of him. She just recently passed this year at 95. But I remember when I took him over there one day to go visit with her, somebody came to her door. He didn't bark or anything. He saw her at the door and he just got up and walked and stood there because he's a big dog and he's just a imposing. It's almost as if he knows that. He's like, I don't have to bark. Just, and he's the sweetest thing ever. He loves everybody. He loves attention. So yes, that would be the first thing he would say, pay attention to me. He would probably say, love on me. They always love that, that like 
the biggest dogs are always like the most gentle, like just teddy bears. They could look mean or like people could think they look so intimidating, but you're like, they just want to hug you. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Okay. So next question is, and this might be hard because I know you've worked with a lot of different organizations, like even just at conferences and things. But is there one organization that you have like a really big crush on in animal welfare that you love the work they're doing and that you look at them and you're like, oh, I'm going to copy what they're doing? So I'm going to say this before coming to Brandywine, it would be Brandywine because I thought they were amazing. Yeah. And I'm just saying before coming just because I'm here now. So I don't think it's fair to really say Brandywine, but I just, I really admired what they were doing with transports and, you know, and I would work with individuals before actually knowing the organization. And they were always so willing to take like certain dogs and everything. I'm like, Hey, so just want to direct your attention to this particular dog on the manifest. If you could take them, that'd be great. So them, and just, I like what they're doing. They're not all about just transport. They really want to help communities and for them to come out to Louisiana and do all of that and put people there to help that parish or rural rural parish to help them turn around their live outcome rate and everything. It's amazing to me. So Brandywine would have been it, but again, I'm now working for Brandywine. So I don't know. You've just like captured your most frequent crush. So it's fair that you need like a palate cleanser before you start crushing on someone else. Before you pick another one. I think maybe once I start, who knows, my, being at Brandywine, I might get to know some other organizations and everything and be see the other side. There might be some other ones, but I don't know. I, I kind of, I'm just going to be- You found true love. You don't need to crush. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, I just think at Brandy is kind of like, almost like the pinnacle a little bit. I mean, there are things I want to do while I'm here. Of course, I don't want to stay in this particular position. There are, I have certain ideas and everything. And just, I think I talked about this in the video, just how I want to see animal sheltering just kind of just changed and everything. And I, I really believe, and that's one of the reasons why I came to Brandywine too, is just, I believe that my vision for that, I can achieve it at Brandywine just because they're kind of very progressive. So I think they would be more open and they have the means and everything to be able to, I can, you know, work through Brandywine to do that. I love that. That's so exciting. Just like being exactly where you know you need to be. That's incredible. Okay. So we have one last question. Is there one life motto or saying that you say to yourself consistently or that you like to live by? There's just always this joke in my, the previous director, I had my certain little sayings, like that's not a thing. And like, what, what are we, I mean, there's a couple, maybe a curse word up in there, but what are we doing that I to live by? One of the things I do say is, when dealing with the public, say all it takes is a conversation. Oh, I like that. Just say all you have to do, just talk to people. Just all it takes is a conversation. I think if people would do that, just talk to people. And I mean, not in just trying to find out, you know, with adoption and just not going up just off of what they look like, but I mean, just cultures and getting to know people from different cultures and everything. I don't know. I've always kind of found that fascinating just getting to know people from different cultures and how people live. How do they do life? Just if you go somewhere else, people are, they're different. The way they do things are just going to be different. And we need to learn how to accept that and not think that our way is the right way. All it takes is a conversation. I think that would be the one. I really love that. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. This has been so great. Thank you so much for, I know it's late now where you are. So thank you. I know we're, we're soaking up your extra hours. You need to work on those boundaries, but we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. No problem. I loved it. This was great. More I get to know about Jennifer, the more I am absolutely dazzled by all the work she does. It is so inspiring to meet someone with such amazing integrity 
and someone who's looking to make such a huge difference in the world of animal sheltering. If you want to learn a little bit more about the work she's doing and her current work, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.